of Acts, Acts chapter 7, and we're going to actually read the whole of, of Acts chapter 7, so let's remind ourselves as we come to it that this is the Word of God, Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abram had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and their fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abram had bought from the sons of Hamer at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abram, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came out upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, your brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? 
But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and I've come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40, 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert that had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern they had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them and they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. So reads God's precious word. We're going to continue in our praise and worship just now as we uplift our offering. And as we do so, we'll remain seated anyway for the beginning of it and sing Cornerstone. In the book of Acts, and we find ourselves at a point where Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin. And, and he is asked by, by the high priest if the charges that have been brought against them are true. And these charges relate to blasphemy against Moses and God, verse 11 of chapter 6, and of speaking out against the temple and the law, verses 13 and 14. And in verse 2, Stephen begins his defense. And he begins it, if you notice, in a courteous manner. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And what he does is he takes them on a journey through the Old Testament scriptures. Scriptures that they would have known very well. And we cannot and we must not underestimate the importance of this speech and of what follows in regards to Christian mission and the furtherance of the gospel at this time. It is the longest of all the speeches and acts. It's very difficult to break it up into to different chunks. And what it does is it, receive, sorry, it reviews the history of Israel and, and the contribution and, and also the rejection of those whom God had sent as leaders. However, as F.F. F. Bruce points out, this speech, this speech that Stephen makes, is not calculated to, to secure, if you like, an acquittal. You know, Stephen's kind of up here knowing full well that, that, that he's, he's, going to be, he's going to be killed. He's been charged with blasphemy. And Bruce makes the, the argument that his speech is not calculated to, to, to secure an acquittal. 
what it is is it is a defense of Christianity as God's appointed way of worship. And as we study it this morning, we were not going to go through it verse by verse. But rather, we're going to just take wide, very wide brush strokes. And I want us to notice what Stephen says, what Stephen sees, and that Stephen sleeps. Firstly, and what takes up most of the chapter, what Stephen says. I am very grateful to um, Ageth Fernando for the way that in his commentary he breaks down Stephen's speech. In it, he sees Stephen showing that the activity of God down through the years is not confined to the geographical land of Israel. That worship is not confined to the Jerusalem temple. And that the Jews had constantly rejected God's sent representatives. And we'll come back to these three things. However, the first thing that really, really struck me as I studied this long chapter was how Stephen spoke purely from the scriptures. He obviously knew not just the history of his people, but he knew what that history signified. And he speaks of the nations, if you like, revered leaders that God had sent. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, the prophets. And he shows how they all, every single one of them, from Genesis, from the very beginning, they show how they all pointed towards everything that Jesus was and Jesus did. And that actually, when he gets to the end of his talk... It is not Stephen who is guilty of blasphemy and false worship, but they themselves. And like many of the speeches in Acts, this is, if you like, an ideal blueprint in this of what's known as biblical contextualization. And if you want to know more of what that means and how to apply that, come along a week on Saturday. But anyway, what it is, Basically, it is taking the Bible and it is making it relevant to the context in which it is spoken. Stephen here stands before these religious leaders who would have known the scriptures back to front, inside out and upside down. He knew his audience and he spoke to them that day in a way that was relevant to the issue that was at hand. So what did he say? And what was the significance of it? Well, using the three themes that I mentioned earlier from, from Aegis Fernando's book, let, it, let us consider them. Firstly, God is not just confined to a particular geographical place or country. Notice what Stephen says. God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia and Haran. He blessed Joseph while Joseph was in Egypt. 
He spoke to Moses in the desert near Sinai. So from the very beginning, God had, if you like, a missional purpose for the whole world. Do you recall God's call and God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1? I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Who is your neighbor? All peoples on earth. We saw that last Sunday evening, didn't we? When, when we looked at Genesis 38, when, when in Egypt, Potiphar was blessed because the Lord was with Joseph. But what was happening up in Jesus' time and, and just before it, what was happening was the Jews were restricting God just to themselves. Why even the, even the disciples made that mistake only a few months earlier regarding the geographical thing of God's kingdom. Remember Acts 1 verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No. The kingdom of God and of his Christ is not geographical. It is not bound, brothers and sisters, by boundaries of any kind, whether that be race, color, creed, or whatever. And what we will see is how following Stephen's death, the, the, the disciples were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. A narrow view of the activity or the kingdom of God is unbiblical. And Stephen shows the Sanhedrin that very point. And he shows them it from the scriptures and from their history. The same is to be said regarding the worship of God. Stephen brings up this, the, the account of Moses at, at, at the burning bush. God told him, the ground you're standing on, Moses, is holy. And the reason it was holy is not because of where it was, but because of who was there. God was there. Just as God was at Mount Sinai. Then we had the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle and then the Temple. Yet continually, continually, the Jews, if you like, desecrated it. You see, when you look through your Old Testament and, and, and church history, it's not Stephen that was seeking to destroy the temple, it was them. 
Think back to the last week of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember him going into the temple in his final week and praising them for what they were making? No. <laughs> Far from it. He cleared it out, telling them that it was to be a house of prayer. A whole subject on that alone. A house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And what had happened was over the years, the worship at the temple had degenerated into nothing more than dead, formal, religious gatherings. Dead, formal, religious gatherings. And although it was Solomon that, that, that built the temple. He already acknowledged the, the great truth that God did not live in temples. 1 Kings 8 verse 27. You see, to define God to one place of worship is illogical and unscriptural. Paul, when he visited Athens, a place that was surrounded by, by temples to, to all kinds of gods, says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and he does not live in temples built by hands. Later on, when writing to the church in Corinth, he tells them and he would say to us this morning, brothers and sisters, those of us who are in Christ, do you not know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. Again, F.F. F. Bruce in his book makes a point when he says this. To announce the suppression or destruction of the temple was not to commit blasphemy or sacrilege against God, even as being accused of. Because God was independent of any temple. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful today of not making our own temples. of restricting God to this place or that place, thinking he can only meet with us then or here, but not there. Our bodies are the living temple of the Holy Spirit. They had badly mistaken God by limiting him geographically and by restricting him to one place. But notice how Stephen tells them that also over the years they have rejected God's messengers. Imagine standing listening to or sitting listening to Stephen that day. And he tells them about rejecting God's messengers, especially though not exclusively Joseph and Moses. And let me just say that the reason there is so much about Moses here 
in, in, in this speech is, is because the charge is specific about rejecting the teachings of Moses, chapter, uh, verse 11 and verse 14. And Stephen has taken them on this guide through the Old Testament. And by the time we get to verse 51, Stephen is in full flow. And, and, and whether, whether his face still shone as an angel or not, I, I don't know, we're not told. But look down at verse 51. Notice his words. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, political correctness not. You're no better. You're no better than your forefathers. They killed the prophets. They rejected those God had sent to warn them. And now, now, and he brings them right to the crux of the matter, now you have done it to the righteous one. You have killed him, speaking of the Lord Jesus. And he says, it is you who stand guilty. Stephen used scripture as his defense. Read your Bible. <laughs> Pray every day and you'll grow and you'll grow and you'll grow. He used scripture as his defense. Everything that Stephen said that day was rooted and it was grounded in the word of God. He contextualized it and he delivered it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that is what true preaching needs to be. Rooted and grounded in the word of God and proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stephen could only stand and speak like that because Stephen knew his Bible. How well do you know you? You're called to give a defense. Would you be able to do so? What Stephen said. Notice, secondly, what Stephen saw. I'm sure that one of the things he must have saw was their reaction. You see lots of things standing up in front of people. And we are told, and remember these are the religious people of the day. Okay? They're the religious people of the day. We are told that they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at them. However, it is what we are told next that I want us to focus on. Because we are told that Stephen, who was full of the Holy Spirit, description given to him in Acts 6, wasn't it? But Stephen, who was full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven. It's always good to look up. He looked up to heaven. 
and he saw the glory of God. But he saw something else. He saw Jesus standing. Standing at the right hand of God. And he tells them. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why did, Jesus, why did Stephen see Jesus standing? Because if you know your Bible and if you look back at Luke, to, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 69, when Jesus is before the chief priests and the teachers of the law, probably some, if not all, who Stephen now stands before, when Jesus stood before them, Jesus said this to them, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand. Of the mighty God. And if you go into the book of Hebrews. You will read four times. That we are told that Jesus has sat down. At the right hand of God. Yet Jesus, yet Stephen sorry. Here sees Jesus standing. I may be wrong in this. It's been known. But I like to think. That Jesus is standing because he is ready, waiting to welcome Stephen home. Stephen has been confessing Jesus before men. And now Jesus is ready to welcome his servant before God. Jude 24. What a wonderful thought. What do you do? What do you do when someone comes into your home? You stand up. You welcome them. And here is Stephen. He is about to become the first Christian martyr. And as he looks up, he sees Jesus standing, ready to welcome him home. And all of this, all of this is too much for these religious people. They cover their ears. They yell at the top of their voices. And they drag Stephen off out of the city. And there outside the city, they begin to stone him to death. And we're told that they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come to more of him later on. A religious lynch mob. They take over. And Stephen is murdered by those 
who cannot stand the truth. What Stephen said. What Stephen saw. Finally, notice, we see that Stephen fell asleep. As you read verses 59 and 60, again, if you know your Bibles, you, you, you cannot help surely but think back to, to the death of Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. On the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they do not what sorry, they do not know what they were doing or what they are doing. Was Stephen deliberately imitating Jesus? For, for, for there are certainly similarities. In, in, in both cases, false witnesses were produced. In both cases, the charge was blasphemy. In both cases, the execution, both the crucifixion and the stoning of Stephen was accompanied by two prayers. Both Jesus and Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of those carrying it out. Wow. That's powerful. And for the receiving of their spirit. Seems to me that right up to the point of death and even in death, Stephen sought to glorify Jesus. And then Luke simply tells us that when he had said this, he fell asleep. One final quote from F.F. Bruce, he is an Elgin Loon, so I guess I'm okay quoting him. He says this, an unexpected and unexpectedly beautiful and peaceful description of so brutal a death. When a believer dies, they fall asleep. John 11, verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. That is, the body sleeps and our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And when Jesus returns, as he surely will, then our bodies will be raised and they will be glorified and they will be united. Or sorry, our spirit and body will be united and then we'll be glorified. And then we will be forever with the Lord. No wonder Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and says encourage one another with these words and yes 
death is sorrowful. And yes, we weep. And yes, we mourn. And yes, we miss loved ones who have gone before. Notice the reaction. Notice the early church's reaction to, to Stephen's death. Um, verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter chapter 8. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus wept. It's not wrong for Christians to weep and grieve and mourn. However, we do not grieve and mourn as others who have no hope. Because we know. We know because the Bible tells us. We know that for those who fall asleep in Jesus, one day we will be reunited. And what a day that will be. Loved ones who have gone before, we'll see them again. I guess that in some ways this account raises the question, doesn't it, of suffering for the gospel. Stephen was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. We've seen how he's able to handle God's word. You kind of think, God, this man could do so much. Why? Well, it's not for us to ask. And suffering for the gospel is something that many of our brothers and sisters are having to endure right now. Right now. Do we really grasp how blessed and how privileged we are to be able to gather like this? We should make the most of every opportunity while it is still day. And although we may not be called to martyrdom, each one of us who professes Christ are called to be a living sacrifice. It was Augustine, I think, who first said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it is true, and we'll see it next time, and as we work our way through the book of Acts, we will see that persecution and suffering for the gospel often go hand in hand. Stephen, as I said, was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He lived for Jesus. He died for Jesus. And Jesus was there ready to welcome him home. Well done, good and faithful servant. What about me? <laughs> Preach to yourself first. What about me? What about you? What about us together as the people of God here in Elgin Baptist Church? 
What does it mean for us to live for Jesus? Are we ready for that day when we will see him face to face? That day when he will welcome us home. Or the other side of that coin, if you've never trusted Christ, he ain't going to welcome you. He's going to say, depart. I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, Stephen's speech that day before these religious leaders opened up the way for the mission of God to spread. That mission is the same today. Who is your neighbor? And it falls on each one of us, each one of us, to go and to speak of Jesus. How I pray that I, that you, that we may be like Stephen, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, willing to live and to die for Jesus and the cause of the gospel and then you too as Jude tells us will be presented with great joy and without fault let us live for Jesus and be ready when our time comes to spend an eternity with him. There is a hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Stephen as he stood before the Sanhedrin that day. Thank you that he knew the scriptures. Thank you that he boldly declared the truth. He called the people to a decision. Thank you that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we fast forward to Elgin Baptist Church, so the scriptures are the same. So the Holy Spirit is the same. So the need for people to turn to you is the same. Fill us afresh, Lord, and help us to be those who are willing to live for Jesus, to count the cost, and to honour you in our lives and in our death. In Jesus' name, amen.